last class, we ended up leaving Egypt in a pretty um, destitute place. God uh, was smiting Egypt and smiting Egypt heavily. Um, Egypt was oppressed by the supreme oppressor, the one who uh, we know to be Russia, coming down from the north, invading Egypt, and uh, eventually pulling back into Jerusalem when they hear, as we talked about in Daniel, the tidings from the east. Um, and we left with uh, verse 15, um, neither shall there be any work for Egypt, uh, which um, the head or tail branch or rush may do. So, so Egypt was, was socially, um, civilly, uh, so far as the civil war goes, thank you, Simon, um, so far as um, the, the Egyptian against Egyptian, um, financially in despair, Egypt was in a pretty dark place. And this morning, sorry, this morning, I'm, I'm right on there with uh, time zones right now. Um, this evening, we want to look at the, the step from the smiting to the healing. But before we jump into that, we want to remember that Isaiah was writing his prophecies, although for us, for the future, there was a bunch of readers in the day of Isaiah who were going to read this prophecy from, from Judah, which is who he was prophesying to. <clears throat> and we want to understand what Judah's thoughts were surrounding Egypt. Um, and we want to consider just briefly a little bit of background. So um, there was two main superpowers, if, if you will, during Isaiah's time when he was prophesying. Um, the greater superpower, the, the international powerhouse, was the Assyrian um, army. It was, it, was, it was the Assyrian nation and, or the Assyrian empire. And um, they, were, they were the global bully at the time. Um, you know, if, if, if they didn't like you, if they wanted to conquer you, you were hooped. You didn't have much help um, or much hope. And, and Egypt, although it wasn't quite as powerful as Assyria, it was still a, a pretty major powerhouse. And Egypt and Israel had a very checkered history, as we know. Um, Egypt uh, persecuted, um, put enslaved, um, kept Israel in bonds, eventually finally let them go. And the backing and forthing between Egypt and Israel over you know, the centuries to follow was not um, a very positive um, scenario. Um, and at this stage... Judah was under such pressure and they were in such fear of the Assyrian army that there was a big push within Judah to approach Egypt and to, to ask Egypt for help to be able to guide, uh, sorry, to, to be able to guard them against the Assyrian. Turn over, please, to Isaiah 30, because this is where God is through the prophet Isaiah. He's, he's telling Israel exactly how foolish they were to try and turn to Egypt for help. In verse one, he says, you're rebellious children. Um, you've decided to take counsel within yourselves and, and not turn to me, God says in verse one. Um, and you've added sin to sin. So you, you, I've put you in this position where you're feeling pressure. And instead of turning to me, now you're going to add sin upon sin and you're going to go elsewhere. He says, you're going to go down to Egypt. You think that you're going to ask for, for strength from Egypt instead of coming to me and seeking strength from me. He says, you're going to go, you're going to, go to Pharaoh and you're going to trust in his shadow, the shadow of Egypt, instead of turning to me and trusting in me. He says, therefore, in verse 3, shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame and the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion. So he says, the fact that you want to turn to Egypt and you want to ask Egypt for help, that, that super, superpower uh, that you think is going to help you against the, the greatest superpower, the Assyrian, says, you're just utterly confused and you're going to be put to shame because of this. For his princes and his ambassadors actually don't like you. You're going to shame them as well. They were all ashamed of a people that could not profit them. He says, like, in, in times past, you couldn't profit them, so they thought, Egypt, and, and you had absolutely um, no benefit that you could give them, and they disregarded you, and now you're going to go back to them 
and and you you see this this feeling of God, like this utter frustration of a, of a father towards his children. Do you not understand how silly you're acting right now that you're going to go to Egypt and you're going to ask for help when you could simply come to me, and I would be more than willing to help. So just as as that little bit of background, you've got those main superpowers. You've got um, Assyria, who, who's the, the the bigger power than Egypt, but Judah decides that they're going to go and ask Egypt for help. And that's the scenario that we're finding ourselves kind of weaving in and out of during the, the time of Isaiah's prophecies. Now, when we start in verse 16, in that day, <clears throat> now, obviously we know that, that when we're talking about reference to in that day, we're, we're talking about reference to the day of judgment, the day of Christ's coming, the day of the, of the end period, that leads to the beginning of the kingdom of God. And we're introduced now from the time period that we know of as history and the unfolding history that we're going to see over the next little while. And we're, in, we're introduced into the final day, that day when, when judgment is going to come upon the earth. And, and it says in that day, Egypt, so that the final day of judgment, Egypt is going to be afraid and fear, and pardon the expression, run like a little girl. It is going to shake because of the shaking of the hand of Yahweh Sabaoth, which he shakes over it. So as we've seen, God brings the king of the north down. The oppressor is great. It gets so great that now there is a significant oppression to the point where God is going to shake over the hand, sorry, is going to shake over um, his hand over Egypt. Now, this idea of shaking the hand over Egypt is this idea of, signif uh, it signifies the brandishing of a weapon in threat. So if you cast your minds back to First Chronicles 21 and verse um 17, 18, 16, 15, that whole section there where, where um, David numbers Israel. And in punishment, God starts to um, put uh, significant pain over the nation of Israel. Um, and 70,000 die in response to David's sin. And David looks up and between heaven and earth, he sees the angel of Yahweh and the sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem because God has told the angel to destroy it. And it says that David and the elders fall on their faces and David pleads to God that it was his own sin that caused this. It wasn't the sin of the people. Um, he sh God should be taking this out on him and sparing the city, and David pleads for the city of Jerusalem. But it would have been an incredibly terrifying situation to see an all-powerful angel representing God with the sword outstretched between heaven and earth, ready to destroy Jerusalem. And that is this idea of, of shaking. That is the idea of brandishing the weapon in threat of destruction. So this is now God's personal intervention um, in, in, in making sure that Egypt feels exactly the threat and the pain that is going to later on cause them to turn and cry unto him. So it's not, uh, it's not just this uh, sense of financial despair, social collapse. This is now Egypt turning into a nation that has the threat of God's, um, uh, the threat of God's warfare upon it. And the land of Judah shall be a terror unto Egypt. So we know that this is, this is God's involvement now. We know that this is where um, we start to see Christ coming and, and um, the land of Judah or Christ representing the land of Judah being an influence over um, Egypt. And this is, this is a significant contrast because Judah, as they're reading this, Judah's going to look at this and go, 
hold on, we're going to be a terror over Egypt? And yet we're the ones who are going to go and ask Egypt for help against Syria. So God's going to bring about a, a, a time period when we are going to be a terror and, and the mere mention of our name is going to be a terror over Egypt. And he says, everyone that maketh mention thereof shall be afraid in himself because of the counsel of Yahweh Sabaoth, which he hath determined against it. So now there is this um, clear intervention of God, and we don't know exactly how it works, but Christ is, is going to reveal himself to Egypt. And, and obviously, um, Christ's revealing ends up turning into salvation, but initially, it's, it's a clear understanding that God is at war against their nation, and, and hence the use of Yahweh Sabaoth. This is God at war against Egypt and Egypt feels it and the terror of Judah comes upon it and again think of what what um the people of Judah who this prophecy is written for would have been thinking at the time like why are we going to go to a nation that's eventually going to be afraid of us why on earth and and the thought process for them would be fantastic Egypt has been has been an enemy of ours for for centuries upon centuries this is, this is great news. <laughs> and the news unfolds that Egypt gets to a point where it's so threatened by God. And we talked about this last class in verse 20, that they cry unto Yahweh because of the oppressor. So they see this oppressor as the hand of God upon them, the brandishing. They see the coming of Christ and they see all of this and they start getting terribly afraid. We'll get to that in a minute. Now, we've got a change of gears here because Egypt has gotten to the point where they are entirely destitute. They are overwhelmed. They are, their hearts are failing within them for fear because of the shaking of the hand of God over them. And then in verse 18, we see that in that day, so in that same day, now obviously not in the same 24-hour period, but in the same time frame of judgment, we see that there are five cities in the land of Egypt. We have a total shift in tone, in intensity. Once Egypt gets to the point where they are totally destitute, where they're totally afraid, where they have nothing that they can do from here to save themselves, we see that there's five cities that are going to be established in the land of Egypt. They're going to speak the language of Canaan. This, this is the language of, of God's people. This is the land of promise. This is the Hebrew language. They're going to speak the language of God. And they're going to swear to Yahweh Sabbath. They're going to have allegiance that they offer to God. Um, now, sorry, because we are on this whole thing, I'm trying to figure out how to go. Oh, there we go. All right, <clears throat> so um, just as a um, point of interest, um, Israel got to the point, uh, sorry, um, Egypt got to the point, no, I am right, Israel got to the point where they needed to learn not to trust in any other hand. And in Psalm 146, verse 3 to 5, it says, put not your trust in princes, this is, this is um, Egypt that they were going to try and trust in, or in the son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh, his God. So the, the big lesson that we're introduced to right at the beginning of this section of the healing of Egypt is the lesson that we can put our trust in no other but God. No one else can save us from the perils that this life has to offer. So. This is Egypt, this great nation that God is going to shake its hand over. And, and today, it is a great nation. When you look at the cities in Egypt, they're incredible cities. Um, they're big cities. Uh, I've got a, a guy in my office who comes from Cairo, and 
Um, he just took a trip back before the whole COVID thing at the end of last year. And, you know, the, the, the information that he, he was sharing about the city of Cairo, it's just incredible. It's a huge city. It's got incredible history, as you see, you know, the pyramids. But, but it's, a his, it's a city that's steeped in everything but God. Interestingly, Egypt has never been a, a nation that's ever turned to God in its history, which we need to keep in mind as we get later on in these verses. So now Israel... Um, there we go. Sorry, I uh, forgot to change my uh, screen over as we were going. The, the brandishing of the weapon of God. So now we've got these five cities that are going to be established in Egypt. Um, now, I'm not saying that that's where the cities are actually going to be, but here's just an example of you know, some of the biggest uh, metropolitan centers in Egypt. And maybe that's the area that those cities are going to be established. But there's going to be five cities that speak the language of Canaan that are going to be established during this time of absolute despair that Egypt is overwhelmed by. They're going to swear to Yahweh Sabaoth, so they're going to be allied to Yahweh. And there is going to be one of those cities that's called the City of Destruction or as, as it should say, the city of throwing down. It's going to be a memorial city that's established to remind the, the, um, the people of Egypt how bad um, things got when they weren't allied, when they weren't um, swearing allegiance to God. Now, um, <clears throat> this idea of throwing down is interesting. Um, in Judges chapter 6, verse 21 to 32, we have the story of Gideon. And God appears to Gideon, and he says, Fear not, I'm going to help you to deliver my people Israel. Now, the very next thing that God asks Gideon to do is to go into his father's house and to throw down the idols, so that the idol that was erected to Baal and the Asherah, um, which was the, the, um, the forests that were erected uh, or that were grown for um, the worship of Ashtaroth. So he says, I want you to go down and I want you to throw down the idols of Baal and I want you to destroy um, the, um, the groves, the trees, the, the, um, the dedicated forests to Ashtaroth. And, and, Gideon is, is actually quite afraid. He, he finds this intimidating to go into his father's own house, into, onto his father's own land, and, and start destroying the idols that were erected there. And so he does it by night, and he takes some men with him. And God says, what I want you to do is I then want you to um, take a, a, a bullock, an ox, and I want you to pull down the altar with the bullock. <clears throat> now, we're going to stop there for a minute. Before Gideon could save Israel, before Gideon could save his brethren, God asked him to do something. Before he could be allied and, and follow after God, God asked him to do something. He asked him to throw down the idols of his own house. Brothers and sisters, what idols do we need God's help to overthrow? What idols are we erecting in, in our homes? In our relationships, money, status, sports, food, entertainment, moral temptation and challenges, all of us have idols that are built up in our hearts or in our households that God wants us to ask his help to throw down. Because without throwing down those idols, the offer of salvation and the offering of ourselves for the salvation of others is going to be hindered. And so we see is Egypt go through this process of the same process that we go through, the same process that Gideon went through. Interestingly, we'll see later the same process that um, um, Israel went through when it comes to the process of... Whoa. Sorry, I had some pretty incredible feedback coming through. Um, so, um, we need to consider what kinds of, of, of idols we should be throwing down in our lives to take that big jump forward towards the grace of God. 
Now, obviously, going back to these cities, there were five cities. This is significant because, as we know, throughout Scripture, five is often um, symbolic of God's grace. So Egypt gets to a point where it's totally and utterly destroyed. Its, its hope is gone. And next thing you know, in this, in this destitute nation where, where um, you know, civil unrest where the oppressor has come and, and half destroyed its industry or totally destroyed its industry, um, um, set up this puppet government. The, the governments are, are turning on the people. The people are turning on each other. Like Israel, sorry, Egypt is in an incredibly low, low place, as low as you can get. And there's these cities popping up, five of them, that are speaking a different language, that are speaking the language of God that are allied to God and offering people hope and teaching and knowledge. And that's what these cities are erected for. They are erected to be places where learning about God and who he is and teaching of hope in a time when this nation needs it more than ever in its history, that's what these cities are erected for. And not only is it cities, can you imagine an altar being established in the midst of Egypt for people to, to be reminded that God is the God that they are going to worship? There is an altar to God erected in the middle of Egypt. That's the response. This, this is now a, a series of events that are going to take place. The cities are there established in Egypt. It's the, it's the language as we continue on in the verses it's the language that that indicates to us as it did at the beginning of of um isaiah 19 the involvement of the rainbow angel brothers and sisters this is you and me this is all of us and, and imagine that maybe some of us might have a, a role of being stationed in a city of egypt in one of those five cities to to teach the people of egypt about god and maybe one of the roles that we will have is to help erect this monument, this altar to God in the midst of the nation of Egypt. And it goes on further. It says that there's a pillar at the border of Egypt. And, and obviously, if it's at the border, we assume that it's going to be at the border of Israel rather than the border um, back into the nations of Africa. Um, and, and there is a pillar at the border to Yahweh. So, so Egypt is going through a, an incredible reformation, an incredible transformation, and it's driven by these, this grace that God has placed in the city, these five cities that are manned by, by us. You know, think of it as, as one of the stands that we set up at some of those markets. You know, I know that um, a few years ago we had, uh, I think it was the Kalamunda markets or somewhere, we had, you know, a Christadelphian stand set up. Actually, a few years ago. It was a long time ago now. Probably... 15 years ago, if I'm actually thinking properly, it was during an end of years period. You know, and, and as young Christadelphians, we were there trying to be this little beacon in the middle of this, this busy market to try and teach people about God. And, and, and we as brothers and sisters, as, as immortalized saints who've come into the nation with Christ before Christ goes up and deals with, um, with uh, the Assyrian, the modern day Assyrian the king of the north in, in Jerusalem, he leaves some of us behind in Egypt to help heal a broken nation, to help give hope to a nation that is so poverty-stricken and so lost that they are so open and receptive to the message of God, to the point where there's the altar and there's a pillar established, and, is, and Egypt becomes an incredibly different kind of nation. You know, this wasn't an altar that was built for the purposes of sacrifice. Because that, as we know, is going to happen in Jerusalem, in the temple. This was an altar that was built to remind the people of the destruction that had taken place and of the fact that they needed to go and pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year. Remember, for those nations, and Egypt is specifically noted, that don't come up on the pilgrimage year by year um, to worship God in, in Jerusalem, there would be plagues or there would be no rain that was given, you know, and for 
um, nations like Egypt that don't have rain naturally anyway, you know, it says that there would be plagues and pestilence. So, so we know that, that this is a, a memorial altar to, to lead them and point them toward going to Jerusalem and worshiping God. Now, Egypt is, is entering a totally new phase. They're entering a phase where they're establishing and building altars and cities of remembrance of the destruction of how low they'd gotten. And, and they're learning now from us, from the saints, from believers of, of what God's plan is. And they're starting to build these altars. We think back, to, uh, we know that this is, this is the kind of altar because we look back at, at Joshua chapter 20. Uh, and, and feel free to turn there in your own time. But to summarize, there was <clears throat> Reuben, Gad, and Ephraim. So um, they were on the other side of the Jordan. And they remained on the other side of the Jordan while Israel ended up coming in and establishing themselves in the land. And next thing you know, um, the, the priest at the time, and his name all of a sudden escapes me, sorry about that, um, ends up hearing that um, there was an altar that was erected on the other side of the Jordan. And, and they, were, they were mortified because only in Jerusalem, only in the land, are they to come and worship and offer sacrifices. So they go across the river, they, they sit down with the elders and, and this big confederacy of people who were, who were going to come and fight them. And they, they kind of declare war. And, and Reuben responds and he says, but this is not an altar for, for burning um, incense or offerings. This is, this is not a sacrifice, sacrificial altar. This is an altar to remind us so that we don't forget because we're on the other side of the Jordan and we don't want to be in a position where we do forget. And we want our generations to be reminded of exactly what took place when we crossed over and when, when um, Israel entered the land and when God fought for us. And, and he says, like, far be it from us that we are establishing a false altar. This is to remind us to go into Jerusalem and to, to worship God in Jerusalem. And so they built up this little, this little memorial, this little altar. Obviously, I don't know if it looked like that, uh, like the stones on your screen, but, but there was something that they physically built to remind them of, of worshiping and focusing their lives upon God because they were slightly removed from the rest of the nation. And brothers and sisters, what about us? What kind of altars are we building in our lives to remind us daily as we are separate from our brothers and sisters and we're in the world and having to deal with life and business and work and relationships, what kind of altars are we building up to remind us of God? What memorials are we erecting in our lives? And um, Amanda and I, just a little bit ago, we've, we've um, tried to go back to writing verses on our mirrors. Um, Amanda just wrote one up um, a little while ago on our bathroom mirror just to remind us when we're getting up in the morning to start by, by looking not into the mirror and, and making ourselves pretty for life, but looking into that perfect law of liberty so that we can be close to God. What about spiritual pictures up around our house? You know, how often do we put um, medals and, and take great delight in, in, the, in the worldly achievements of our kids, and yet the Sunday school crafts go in the bin only a week later because we just don't have the space for them, but a, but a track and field medal might hang up on the wall. So what about the kids' Sunday school crafts? Why don't we put those out a little bit more to remind ourselves and our kids of exactly what our focus should be? What about memorials in our yard? I mean, you know, not that I'm advocating that we go and build some um, altar outside, you know, but, but what about things that we can look at, signs on our walls and our doors and our gates? And I love it when, we, when I go to brothers and sisters' homes and there's, you know, this sign on the front door about our faith and about what we're called to be in the sight of God. Quotes on our devices. I've just subscribed a few weeks ago to a daily Bible quote just so that, you know, in, in my work, I get messages and alerts and bings and beeps coming up all the time. And my, my brain is going every which way from anywhere. And then every now and again, oh, well, every now and again, once a day, I get this little reminder, this quote that comes up on my screen. How wonderful that is. Maybe our background being set as a Bible verse, music in our homes, making sure that, you know, these are all memorials and, and altars that we're building up in our life to point us in the direction that we should be going. And right in the midst of Egypt, this nation that had never had anything to do with God before, there is now an altar that is built to remind them that this is Yahweh, their savior. And look to him and pilgrimage yearly to Jerusalem in that kingdom period. And so we have 
this beautiful altar that's built that we, brothers and sisters, if we're a part of that rainbow angel that's, that's performing the work in Egypt, that we can be a part of building and educating the people. And why? Why was it that this was built? Well, it was for a sign and a witness to Yahweh Sabaoth, as we read in verse 20. Now, this is really similar language to what we've read in the past when it comes to Egypt. In Exodus 7, verse 3 to 5, God says to Moses that I am going to do incredible things against Pharaoh and Egypt to the point where there's going to be signs and wonders. There's going to be all this pain that they go through for the purpose of knowing that I am Yahweh. That's God's purpose. He was going to judge Egypt. He was going to deliver his people out of Egypt. He was going to put them through incredible, incredible turmoil so that they would know through signs and wonders that he was Yahweh, the knowledge of Yahweh. And brothers and sisters, this is no different. God is going to do these incredible things for signs and for a witness unto Yahweh Sabaoth in the, in the land of Egypt. Why? The beginning of verse 21. And Yahweh shall be known to Egypt. Now, in the time of the Exodus, it was to know and fear God. But in the time of, of the future, in that day, it is to have them come to an understanding of who God is and that God is being gracious to them. But this is not just for the sake of Egypt, although, you know, what a wonderful hope after being so um, destitute and demolished. By, by the oppressor of the north, they, they, they can turn to God, and God is there to help them and save them, as we read further on. But what an incredible hope internally. But, but remember, this is, this is a witness. This is now God using Egypt as a witness, which is different kind of language to what we're used to. We're used to God using Israel as his witness. But God says he's going to use Egypt as his witness. Why? What, you know, what's the witness well, what Egypt has just gone through is what the whole world is going to go through. Armageddon is going to bring world powers to their knees. It's going to be horrendous for the population of, of most countries of the world. People are going to be confused and broken. They're not going to have any, any income. They're not going to, you know, I mean, we've seen a little bit of it just with, with this, you know, pestilence that we've received with COVID-19. We, we see a world that's in, in doubt and, and who knows what the future has in store over the next few months while, while the effects of 30% unemployment in the United States starts to roll through the rest of the world. But, but the world gets to a point with the, with the return of Christ and with World War III, with Armageddon, that, that, that they are so confused and they have absolutely no idea what's going on. And what an incredible example that a nation like Egypt that has never known God, that really God owed nothing to, he could have destroyed them quite easily and, and, and not had a second thought about it. But instead he humbles Egypt and he brings Egypt to a point where he saves them because they turn to him and they cry. What an incredible example to the rest of the world. They see that example. They see the five cities that are established in Egypt for the learning of who God is, the altar that's established, the pillar that's established. In, the rest of the world goes, wow, this God who has just brought all this turmoil, he also can bring grace. He can also bring salvation. And if he's done it for Egypt, then he's going to do it for us. And so the witness of Egypt is that a, a, a nation that has never known and never believed in God can be saved by God. What an incredible hope. What an incredible message that God is putting out there to the world right at the beginning, even before Armageddon ensues, although this is probably all happening um, simultaneously uh, with, with the establishment of these cities and, and the healing of Egypt um, at the same time that... Um, Armageddon is taking place in Israel and God is overthrowing um, Gog and his hosts <clears throat> through Christ. So what an incredible witness it is for the whole world to see this taking place. And so they build an altar. 
and they memorialize the great things that God has done for them to remind them to never get to that stage again where they don't have a hope in God and they don't have a knowledge of God. Um, uh, sorry, I got away from my notes for a minute there. Um, just in summary, if God is willing to work with Egypt, then he can work with us too is the message that he's putting out uh, that he wants the world, the whole world to take to heart. Now, <clears throat> as we go through the process that Egypt underwent um, to eventually receive the salvation of God, we, we start to take this a little bit more personally because it's the same process that we go through. It's the same process that, that Peter talks about in his epistle of um, humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt us in due time. And he says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We'll, we'll get to that um, in a minute as well. But it's also the same process that Israel goes through when it comes to um, their salvation. Look at, look at the language that's used in Isaiah 19, verse 20 to 22, and Zechariah 12, verse 19 to 20. So we see, obviously, that it's in that day. So Zechariah 12 talks about in that day twice. And, and as we've read through um, Isaiah 19, we see that it's in that day, in that day. It actually uses it three times, but in this specific session, it's a section, it's once. We also see that they shall cry unto Yahweh. And in Israel's case, they shall mourn for the one that they pierced. Again, turning and crying unto Christ. God's representative. When we look a little bit closer, it also says that um, Egypt shall know Yahweh in that day. And, and um, of Israel, it says they shall look upon him whom they've pierced. So they will understand truly who Christ is at that point. They will start having a knowledge, a knowledge and an awareness of, of who exactly they were dealing with when Christ was on the earth. And if we look a little bit closer, it says... And he shall send them a savior and a great one. And in Israel's case, it was the spirit of grace and supplication will come with their savior, the one who they look upon and know to be Christ, the one who they pierced and they mourn. And, and even the section um, Zechariah 12 and Isaiah 19 start off with the burden of Egypt and the burden of the word of Yahweh for Israel. This is not just a process that Israel alone goes through, sorry, that um, Egypt alone goes through. This is a process that Israel has literally had to go through and will go through at the same time. This is a process, brothers and sisters, that you and I go through, where we are constantly pulled back to God through circumstances in our life, where he gets us to, to fall flat on our face sometimes where he, he works with us through experiences and circumstances in our life to bring us to a greater knowledge of who he is so that we can receive the salvation that he's offering through the great one. And this is just the process that God has designed for human beings to go through when it comes to salvation. It's just that Egypt is, is on a much bigger scale and it's people who've never known God who are going to know God. We are people who started off not knowing God and God loved us even before we loved him. And he brings us to that point where he, he actively opposes us, smashes us down so that we can be elevated after being humbled. And it's the smiting and the healing that goes hand in hand. And, the, and, and when we look, turn with me, please, to that um, passage in, in Peter. If you look at first of Peter chapter five, I used to read this as two separate groups of people. First of Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the older. Yea, all of you be in subject one to another and be clothed with humility. And, and, and he's establishing this character of, of humility and, and subjection to one another. He says, because God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And I've always read that as there's, there's a group that's proud and God resists. He turns his back on them and he's, no, I'm not interested in you. You're proud. And yet he reaches down to the humble on the other side and he says, I will give you my grace. 
But when we read it the way that it should be written, the, the way that it should be read, that word resisteth is not this sense of I'm, I'm, I'm resisting you. It's actually the word oppose. It's the word to actively engage in opposition. And when we read that properly, it actually says God resists, God opposes the proud. He brings them down low. He actively fights against them to, to, to make them humble so that he can give them grace and elevate them in due time. And we know that this is what exactly what Christ preached in the, in the prodigal son. Someone who, who ran away with all the inheritance, who got opposed and brought them very low in their life to the point where they got so depressed that even the servants in my father's house are better off than I am. And maybe I should go back. Yes, I will go back to my father. I will admit my sin. And as he is afar off, the father comes out to meet him and elevates him, gives him a gold ring and a cloak, provides a covering for him that he didn't have in his sins. Now he has a covering in Christ. And, and the father comes and meets him and provides him with that ring, that elevation, and, and, and throws a meal for him, the marriage supper of being back in the household of God. And we know that that's the, the actual context of First Peter because he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And this is exactly what Egypt is going through. They are going through a smiting so that they can be elevated. Because even the Egyptians will turn and follow God. That nation that is so steeped in paganism and, and, and corruption of, of of what's true and, and faith. And yet God says that I will heal them. I will save them. And I will establish those five gracious cities for teaching, for education. And there will be an altar and there will be a pillar on the border of, of Israel and Egypt to remind them just how wonderful I have treated them when they responded to my opposition. And so we see this incredible, sorry, I'm not there yet. We see this incredible um, parallel between our lives in Egypt and between Israel as a nation in Egypt and, and you know, all the stories and parables of, of responding humbly unto God. So we move into our final verses of Isaiah 19. <clears throat> and this is an incredible picture. This is a truly incredible picture um first before we get on to on to verse 22 and beyond it says that they shall do sacrifices and oblation yea they shall vow a vow unto yahweh and they shall perform it so this is the process of egypt being baptized into the hope of christ they will vow a vow they will do sacrifice they will they will be a part of God's family through baptism, through that, through that humbling and that salvation that God offers them. And he says in verse 22, and Yahweh shall smite Egypt. He shall smite and heal. And they shall, Rotherham says that that should say turn. It's not the idea of returning because as we said before, Egypt has never been um, in allegiance uh, and, and worshiping God. So this is, they will turn to Yahweh and he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. And so we see that that father that is entreated of a son and even Egypt of all nations, the iron furnace as it's described in, in the Old Testament, even the iron furnace is going to be able to be entreated of God. Uh, uh, sorry, is going to be able to entreat God and God will heal them. <clears throat> but God can do amazing things, brothers and sisters. I mean, we've seen that with Egypt, but look at verse 23. In that day, there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. Whoa. Now, there's two different ways that you can look at this. The physical land of Assyria, which is the occupation of the Arabs nations, Iraq, um, Iran, you know, that kind of situation. Or we look at in the context of, of, the, of the 
of the Assyrian of the latter day. Now, the Assyrian of the latter day, Russia, is the same oppressive power that has just come in and obliterated Egypt. It's the same oppressive power that's established puppet governments, tore them apart brick by brick, um, dried up their waterways, left them utterly destitute. And it says that there is going to be an open flow of travel between Egypt and Assyria. And the Assyrian shall come into Egypt and Egypt and the Egyptian into, the, into Assyria. And the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. <clears throat> now, I don't know <clears throat> if you've ever <clears throat> tried to uh, broker a breakdown between two people. I see it a little bit with buyers and sellers of properties because they're coming at things from a slightly different angle. Um, but, you know, being able to bring parties together and heal damage is difficult. But heal nations that have literally centuries of bad blood and, and even more recently in, in Egypt's history at this point, they've been obliterated and, and destroyed by that nation. To heal that relationship and bring them to the point where they have open flow between their borders of, of passage of people and that they're serving together. Now, that is something that only God and Christ are able to achieve. What an incredible achievement. But not only that. This isn't just the, the healing of, of the relationship between Egypt and God and the relationship between the Assyrian and the Egyptian. This is also God saying, if you think that there's, there's things that I can't do, think again. You have absolutely no idea what I'm capable of. I am actually capable of bringing the two most sinful cities in the history of Bible prophecy, uh, sorry, in the history of Bible um, of the Bible, Egypt and the Assyrian, that are responsible for utter atrocities, and I am going to make them a threefold cord with Israel, my people. So this isn't just a highway between Egypt and Assyria. This is what is described in Isaiah 35, if you will turn there with me, please, verses 8 to 10. This is the highway that will be there in verse 8, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. No lion, and we know that the Assyrian is this lion with wings um, typified in history. You know, there will be no lion, there will be no ravenous beast on this way, on this highway. There will be the redeemed that walk on this way. And the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with songs of everlasting joy upon their heads. And they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is that great highway that unites the world. And, and in, these, in these three nations, God is saying that all nations of the world are going to be healed and brought together and worship me alongside of, of my inheritance, Israel. You know, that's exactly how he finishes this, this passage. He says, in that day, Israel is going to be a third with the Egyptian, with the Syrian. There's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor, female, bond nor free, male or female. Sorry, I got ahead of myself there. All are one in Christ Jesus, whom Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of war. It is God that warred against Egypt and against Assyria and even against Israel that is going to bring this about. God at war is going to bless them, saying, blessed be Egypt, the works of my hands. Sorry, um, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Brothers and sisters, what an incredible position God brings the world to, where these nations of old, the modern versions and the historical versions, when they are, when they are oppressed and when they're brought low, when God brandishes his sword and brings them low and humbles them, he's also doing it so that he can elevate them and provide grace. 
Now, this is on a macro scale. This is an incredible thing that God is willing to do with the whole earth. But brothers and sisters, if he's willing, it to, willing to do it with a nation <clears throat> and two nations at that and three nations at that, really, Israel as well. If he's willing to do it with three nations that are, have been at odds with him and, and Israel is included at odds with God on, on all sorts of occasions, they are not a godly nation right now. God will two thirds destroy them to bring them back to himself. He'll do the same thing with Israel as he's done with Egypt to a degree. If he can do it on a national scale, he can also do it with us. And he says, I chasten those who I love. If you are not receiving chastening, you are not my children. You are illegitimate. Brothers and sisters, the chastening hand of God is truly the loving hand of God. The loving hand of a father who's trying to guide us through these difficult circumstances of our life and bring us out the other end, ready to receive his salvation. And the pillar is there <clears throat> at the border of Israel because that highway that brings people through Egypt, and, and, and we know that, that the return of God's nation, of his own people, we believe is going to come through Egypt. It's going to come through Egypt. They're going to see that altar. They're going to be educated by those cities that we're manning, that we're, we're, we're involved in building and, and, and um, teaching from. And then he's going to bring them past that pillar as we, as we go from that highway and enter into the promised land. And what an incredible moment that will be when people will see the altar that's built, be reminded by the pillar that's established that God who wars with us is just the tough love father who's trying to bring us to the point where he can give us grace. And brothers and sisters, may each one of us in our life take encouragement from the smiting and healing of Egypt that when God is bringing us low, it is only because he loves us so much that he wants to bring us into the kingdom and he wants to give us his grace. And he has to bring us low before we can receive that grace. So by his grace, may we patiently endure his heavy hand so that we can receive his wide open outstretched hand in the form of his son at his return.